So today is our last installment in the series 1159, and I've called this message 1201, because this is the miracle you need after the miracle you thought you needed, right? The, the one that you thought you needed, and then God comes through uh, a little bit late, actually. It appears late, at least from our point of view. Um, it's easy to get up and watch the news nowadays and come away thinking that hope is in short supply. We hear stories of devastating terror attacks of the unsuspecting and the innocent. And now, I think the statistics are that there are more domestic terror victims than there are foreign terror victims. Think about that. We're living in a, as divisive and volatile of a political environment that I personally have ever seen in my lifetime. I don't know about you. Maybe you've seen worse. But in the 48 years that I've been alive, I haven't. The moral landscape in our nation is literally... Madness, where things that used to be self-evidently true are being denied as true. And there's also the false promise of this alleged social justice. Let me tell you something. God is all about justice. He's a God of justice. But you can't get it if you take up arms against people who are of a, of a differing political viewpoint than you. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not how God does it. And the news in our personal lives might not be any better than we see on TV. Sometimes we, we experience family strife or an apparently ir irreconcilable conflict between spouses or parents and children. And you may be in a difficult marriage today or a relationship and frankly you have no solution for it. And you are crying out in desperation to God, God can you change this thing? And it seems like the window is closing. And so my aim today is to inspire you with hope. Hope in the Lord. Uh, to, to help you, my heart is to give you God's answer for every single prayer you've ever prayed. And that answer today is going to be found in this story. And we're going to experience it as the men who experience Jesus in this story do. So I've entitled this uh, 1201 because the story we're going to look at today happens in a time when it looks like the miracle is just a few minutes too late. Out of the tens of thousands of well-wishers curiosity, uh, curious spectators, and groups with political agendas, and those who were just there for the, the bread and the fish, the bountiful supply of bread and fish, for those who were just there to get their bodies healed and their lives restored, out of the tens of thousands of people who packed synagogues and packed houses and filled up hillside amphitheaters and lakeside beaches to come to hear Jesus and to receive something from the ministry of Jesus. He only has 120 left by his death. And the disciples are frankly dazed and confused and nothing turned out according to their expectations. The disciples are emotionally devastated because they love Jesus. They loved him. And their master, their spiritual father is gone. And they feel guilt and shame for having abandoned him. Not one of them was there to help him in his most dire hour of need. And also, they're anxious because they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go. They told Jesus, we have left everything for you. We have left everything for your sake. 
What will you do for us? That was their question. What, what are we going, how are you going to reward us for leaving everything? So now their master in whom all their hopes were set, he is gone. He's gone. And they have heard on Sunday morning this rumor that he was seen alive and that the tomb was empty. And so everyone is left scratching their heads and trying to put the pieces together and wondering what to make of it all. It's all so very confusing. And we pick the story up in chapter 24, verse 13. It says, now, that same day, what day? Resurrection day. It was Resurrection Sunday. They were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As, as they talked, they discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, one of them named Cleopas, who is a genius, by the way, spiritual genius, right here. He said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these, la in these days? And Jesus asked the question in verse 19, what things? I love Jesus, man. <laughs> one, the disciples can't see Jesus. They cannot see Jesus in the fog of their pain and in the fog of their disillusionment, in all that he was supposed to be, they can't see him right there standing with them. And the story, the story is actually sad, but it's also hilarious. It's hilarious because the risen Jesus has come and appeared to them. They can't see him. And this lesson, I guarantee you, by the end of the story, this lesson is going to be indelibly inscribed on their minds. They will never forget this lesson. Because the way that God teaches them is so creative. The true to form, Jesus finds a creative way to teach that they will never forget. And I think there are some reasons why you and I, too, in our lives, can't see Jesus sometimes. And the first one is this, is they're moving on. They're just moving on. I mean, the text doesn't say this, but I believe this is the subtext beneath the text, and that is in verse 13 and verse 33, they're, they're leaving. I mean, they were supposed to be with the disciples and with Jesus, and this was supposed to be his triumphal entry, his triumphal moment as king, and it didn't turn out like they thought, and now they are headed out toward Emmaus, a town seven miles away. And I think the proof that they're just moving on with their life and just sort of done with that the Jesus movement phase that they went through is the fact that in verse 33, after they discover Jesus, this is the risen Jesus and he has come to us, they return immediately, they get up and they return immediately back to Jerusalem, which is where they're supposed to be, right? And so, I can't think, I can surmise from these disciples' reactions in the story that when they go back and tell the other apostles, the 11, and the rest of the disciples there, the joy and elation in their hearts, but up until that moment, up until that minute, that second that Jesus has revealed to them, they were just planning on going back to their business or going back to wherever they came from. And people do this today. I discipled a young man who was a Buddhist. He was coming out of Buddhism. And, and he came to our church in Spokane, and, and I was the discipleship pastor there, and uh, he made an appointment with me. We met in my office, and, he, and this was his story. This is what he told me. He said, man, I have been a Buddhist for years. And I said, well, are you leaving Buddhism? What's going on? He said, I am exhausted. I'm exhausted. 
And he described to me what it was like trying to live up to the, just the legalistic demands in that religion. And he said, man, I can't do it anymore. I'm exhausted trying to be this selfless uh, entity, <laughs> right? And I said, well, so what do you want? And he goes, I think I want to be a Christian. I like this church. I like the, what you guys have to say. I think I want to be a Christian. I said, all right, man, discipleship time. So I took Matthew 1.1. We started right there. And for the rest of that year, we just read through the Gospels together. We met just about every week. Read through the Gospels together. And for a while, it just seemed like he was a really committed believer. And I remember while we were studying through the Gospels, every time I came across or every time we came across something that was very difficult to hear. And Jesus does this a lot. Jesus taught his hardest sayings in his largest crowds. And so every time we would come across like some judgment language or something that just didn't sit right with him, he would say, I can't, I can't accept that. I mean, I can't believe that. And it would happen frequently. And finally, toward the end of the year of our time meeting together, he said this. He said, man, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done with Jesus. I can't be a Buddhist, I know that, but I don't think I could be a Christian. Not, not Jesus' version of a Christian. I'm like, well, then you can't be a Christian, right? Because he's, he's kind of the man. He's the one we're following. But the whole point was this, is that the young man just, he decided there was a point in his life, in his heart, where he just decided, ah, I t I'm moving on from this. I tried it. It didn't really fit me. And so now, I'm moving along. And we see this in our culture, high-profile pastors. I mean, just within the last couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of pastors, just like a, one guy was a pastor, and then just has disavowed his faith. Think of the damage that that does to the people who were following that superstar pastor. Or these pop worship idols, you know? Like once in a while, I think once or twice a year, we have like a pop worship idol that disavows their faith. Aren't you glad we don't have a pop worship idol? It's, aren't you? Yeah. Chris is like, hey, man. I'm glad we have a worship pastor, a worship theologian. I'm glad we have that. Because we need to grow deep in our walk with God. And there are times when people just say, look, I tried the Jesus thing. It didn't work for me. I'm going back to Emmaus. It's difficult to see him clearly when you've just moved on in your heart. Next, I think they're preoccupied in conversation about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. In fact, it appears that from the text that they are engrossed in conversation about Jesus. They are trying to discuss what the importance of Jesus of Nazareth was. I mean, obviously he was from God. Obviously he's an Old Testament prophet. Look at the power. Look at the wisdom of God. Look at the healing of the many, many lives that he physically touched and he touched spiritually. He must be a man from God, but he died on a cross, so, uh, <laughs> you know, that's the attitude. The attitude is man, what? And so while they're busy philosophizing, and, and in this in-depth discussion about the importance of Jesus of Nazareth, who he was, Jesus shows up right there. The risen Jesus is with them and they can't see him. They can't see him because they are busy in deep reflection, engrossed in speculation over his importance. And this can happen in our modern day context as well. We can get so busy studying about Jesus or talking about Jesus or trying to figure things out, theological puzzles, that we forget Jesus is in our midst. He is God the Son, we worship him. Uh, this happened to me uh, a little bit. Over the last four years, I was going through this PhD program, and it was more like a, a more of a secular divinity school. And as a secular divinity 
uh, college or in the university, um, they study Jesus in a very different way than you do in a Christian university. So they, they're very interested in studying about Jesus. They're obsessed with Jesus, actually. But they're obsessed with what they call the historical Jesus. Now, when they use the phrase historical Jesus, they are not talking about the Jesus of the Gospels that you and I read about. They believe that the Gospels were written later and that there's this historical Jesus underneath all those traditions. There's a real Jesus that's set into motion these sort of mythological, fictionalized interpretations that you find in your Bible. But that's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus was back in history somewhere. So they do believe that Jesus lived. And they call that the, histor- the quest for the historical Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, this one is the historical Jesus right here in this book. He's the one the disciples have commemorated in this book and passed on to us. And so I did that. For about two or three years, I read a pile. When I say a pile, I mean stacks of scholarly literature about theories about the historical Jesus. And folks, I tried to play ball. But I'm just a naive fundamentalist, I guess. Because I couldn't deal with it. And right before I turned my dissertation in on the historical Jesus, uh, Carrie got sick. And that put the brakes on every other thing I was doing in my life. That surviving, that has become the, uh, the, really the preoccupation of our lives. And so over the, and here's what I learned. I learned in three years of studying in-depth scholarly opinion about Jesus and nine months of getting on my knees and just worshiping and desperately calling out to Jesus, I've learned a lot more over the last nine months. Because we could get so busy studying and theorizing and thinking about Jesus that we forget Jesus is right here in this room. He is in our midst by the Spirit, and he is the object of our exaltation and worship. And you could do this in Bible study. Man, you find yourself in Bible study just bogged down in the minutiae of all the little details of the text. And the next thing you know, you've lost sight of the Christ of the text. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus teaches them about himself in the text. And then also, lastly, they were kept from recognizing him. This is the sovereign will of God. Why does God do this? Why does God hide their eyes for a little while? Well, one, because I think it's fun. I think it's just fun that he reveals it to them this way. The other one is symbolic, though. Because there's this beautiful symbolic thing that happens as he breaks bread and hands it to them and then their eyes are open. But the other one is this, is I think oftentimes we have to be conditioned by the word. Christ actually does teach them about himself through the word and there's a warming of the heart that has to take place. The cultivation of the soul and the mind has to be conditioned before God reveals Christ often. And so, Cleopas' question, are are you the only person alive right now in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have been transpiring? And Jesus says in verse 19, what things? That's funny. What things? In other words, son, tell me what you know. Tell me what you think you know about the situation. Well, okay, well, I will then. Uh, About Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They're right about that. Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Got the gospel right so far. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Underline the phrase, redeem Israel, because he has a very different definition of what he means by redeeming Israel than Jesus does, and he's about to learn the true gospel. 
And he says, well, what is more? It is on the third day. It's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. So they came back and told us that they had seen a vision of angels uh, who said he was alive. And then some of our companions, the apostles like Peter, they went down to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So we thought we should leave town. We thought, that's good. You know what? Jerusalem is the place where this revelation was given. This is the place to figure it out, to, to validate it or confirm it. Nope, let's go to Emmaus. Let's leave. And then in verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Have you not been reading the Bible? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets? He explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village, Emmaus, to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going farther. Now he's really messing with them. This is a test of responsiveness. Do you want more? Do you want me to come in and really explain it to you? But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So they went in and he stayed with them too. The disciples don't really know who Jesus is. These guys don't. They don't know who he is. They've got it right so far as they know. He was crucified by the Romans. And he was sentenced by the Sanhedrin. And he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. As a matter of fact, when it comes to fulfilling the promise that Moses gave that someday there's going to be a prophet like me and he's going to be your Messiah. When it comes to that promise, Luke focuses on that more than any other gospel. Jesus begins his ministry as a prophet. In Luke chapter 4, he comes into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth and he stands up to read from the scroll of Isaiah and he puts a couple of passages from Isaiah there together and then, he, and, and then he, what he says is, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news. Good news the year of Jubilee where the sovereign Lord is going to set the captive free and open blind eyes and heal the sick and do all of this. And the people go, oh, he's wonderful. He's talking about us. And then he says, oh, by the way, surely you will quote this proverb at me, doctor, heal thyself. What we heard you do in the Gentile territories, come now and do here in your hometown, your Jewish hometown. And then Jesus quotes two stories from the Old Testament where two prophets went out to the outsiders, the Gentiles, the people who are not in the inner circle of God's people. And he reaches out and says, I've come to do that too. And when Jesus says by way of analogy, by way of scripture, I've come to be the savior of the people you hate then a fight breaks out in church. A fist fight breaks out in church. They're ready to kill him for that. Think about that. Now, at the end of that story, what does Jesus say? A prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Jesus is the prophet. And when you, when you get up to uh, later in the book of Luke, Jesus sends the 12 out and they go out and they minister in the power of the spirit and they set people free in Jesus' own power and his commission and they come back to the campfire and Jesus says, who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And they say, all of them, 100% of them say, you're some kind of prophet. They don't know what kind, but you're some kind of prophet. They're not wrong as far as they know. He is the prophet, but he is so much more. And Jesus must show them this in their own Bible, in the Hebrew text. Jesus is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the suffering servant who is exalted on the cross, 
who is pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the punishment that brings us peace is upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And surely he bore our iniquities, the iniquities of us all. He is God's Paschal Lamb. And Jesus is the sovereign son of man in Daniel chapter 7. This is what he tells Caiaphas at his trial. You will, I am the son of man, yeah. And you're going to see me coming on the clouds of glory. That is a reference to Daniel 7 where the son of man ascends on the cloud of glory to receive all glory and power and authority from the ancient of days, God the Father, and then all worship from the nations. That's what the son of man does in Daniel 7. And Jesus says, I am he. And Jesus is the descendant and Lord of David. He is the good shepherd and the incarnate ruler of Ezekiel 34. He is the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. And Jesus takes them on a tour through the Old Testament and shows them every place where it speaks concerning him. And what happens? Their hearts are on fire. (laughs) Can you imagine having a Bible study with Jesus? If you ever do, he's going to teach you about Jesus in the word. And their hearts have been set ablaze and warmed to the scriptures. This is why their eyes are not open yet because God is cultivating the ground. He is conditioning them. He is preparing them to receive this revelation so they don't walk away from it later. In verse 30, it says, when he was at the table with them, he, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were suddenly opened. They had a remarkable epiphany and they recognized who he was. And he disappeared just right into the ether, right from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up at once and returned to Jerusalem with urgency. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it's true, guys, it's absolutely true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The symbolism of that is powerful. Number three, Jesus is the answer to every longing of the heart. Most important point of the text, Jesus is the answer to every longing of the heart. Their hearts longed for Jesus to fulfill their dream of glory, the glory of Israel. And when they were disappointed and disillusioned in that, they discovered Jesus was what they needed. The risen Savior who was in their midst, that's what they needed. And they believed that Jesus would free them from Roman oppression. And there were so many expectations they had for the Lord. And so many requests they had from him. And what they discovered at that table is that as they broke bread with the master, as they broke bread with the Savior, their eyes were open to who he was. And he himself is the answer to every longing of the heart. He really is. Stop and think, what do you long for? And it may be in that moment that you have asked God to come through. And it turns out that in that moment, 1159 has come and gone, and it's 1201. But in that moment, God begins to stir hope again. And when what we thought was a closed window of opportunity, God is still working in ways that we could not see, ways in which we could not anticipate or have foreseen now the news of Jesus' resurrection, it isn't secondhand for them. Belief in Jesus isn't secondhand. It wasn't this Jesus thing we did for a while. It is immediate. It is urgent. And it is personal. 
And as the risen Jesus sits before them and with them and passes out this bread, he invites them to a table of fellowship. And I'm telling you, whatever you are facing, whatever you are going through, that's what you need. You need that table of fellowship with Jesus. You need it more than you need anything you think you need. You know, over the last nine months, I can tell you this, I've had a lot of expectations for God. A lot. I mean, I have just, I have asked him a thousand, four thousand things. Two in particular. <laughs> but I mean, I have, just, I have come to the Lord. There are times when I have felt so impossibly lonely. Like just these moments or seasons or a day or a week of just incredible, profound loneliness. And I would come to the Lord and hit my knees and not studying historical critical scholarship, but, but studying the word and just coming before the Lord and finding that at this table of fellowship, as Jesus breaks bread, my eyes are open and he's the one that I need. And I'm telling you, he's the one you need. What you and I need is to come to his table of fellowship and sit with him and inhale his truth, to breathe in the free oxygen that he gives us of his truth. And so the resurrected Jesus is right there breaking bread with these men. Now think just for a second how Luke uses bread in his gospel. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, Luke uses bread in his gospel in a way that shows us the gospel. First, Jesus begins his ministry in this contest, this cosmic contest between himself and Satan, where Satan hands him a plate of rocks and says, turn these into bread. You should do it. If you're the son of God, you could. And so Jesus has to start with a temptation that involves bread. And then Jesus offends the Jewish leaders by eating the sacred bread. They're like, what are you doing? Are you, who do you think you are? You don't eat the sacred bread. Jesus said, yes, I do. I, may, I invented this. <laughs> and then Jesus announces that he's the better Moses by giving the crowds, the hillsides, the better bread. And then he tells them, I'm the bread. I am the bread of life. And then Jesus uses bread as one of two of his key symbols, the wine and the bread. That's the gospel, his broken body and his shed blood. And now Jesus is breaking that bread and in the moment he hands it to them, their eyes are open to who he is and they realize all of our hopes and all of our dreams and everything we ever wanted from the Messiah doesn't matter. What matters is that the Messiah was right here with us. What miracle or answer to prayer do you seek? Whatever it is, I want you to know that ultimately for the disciple, Jesus is the bread of life who has come down from heaven. Jesus is the manna given by the Father. Now, there have been some pretty freaky things that have happened in the news lately. And I'm tempted to be very judgmental. But I've tried to listen to the Spirit speak to my heart and direct these things at my heart and say, Jeff, where's your heart in relationship to this? Now, I'll tell you one. I hesitate to even tell this story because it's so unseemly. But I want you to imagine for a second having all the money in the world. Everything you ever wanted. So much money, so much liquid cash flow that you could go to the Caribbean and buy yourself a Caribbean island and build a nice custom home there. Well, there's a man in the news who did that. He's a financier. His name is Jeffrey Epstein. Have you heard this story? This guy killed himself in his prison cell, allegedly, last week. But he had this island... And it turns out that his island was a nexus for a sex trafficking ring where he pimped out these little girls, these little teenage girls to the, to the powerful and the wealthy. This guy's money and his stuff 
somehow in his mind, it clicked that I can have any, I can indulge any desire I've ever wanted and I can have power over the vulnerable. And you read that and you go, but that's tawdry. That's so unseemly. But there it is. There's a guy who literally has everything he's ever wanted. Now he's killed himself. What did it get him? What did having every itch scratched in his life, what did it get him? Well, it got him damnation because he walked into eternity far from God. And I'm here to tell you, if God answered every prayer you ever had, if God said yes and amen to everything you ever asked him, if you had that stuff and you didn't have Jesus, you would have nothing. What you and I, what God has called us to, God is calling us. He is summoning us and he is inviting us to the table, the table of fellowship. Because what would it profit for me or you or any person to gain the whole world, to have enough to afford to buy the whole world, yet forfeit their very soul in eternity? So I have some questions for you. Here's the first one. Are there some things about Jesus you haven't figured out yet? I mean, I think that would be true of all of us. I mean, there for sure are some things about Jesus that I haven't figured out. I hope you would be humble enough to say, oh, sure, yeah, lots. But here's the deal. Are you sitting here today and you, there are some things you haven't figured out about Jesus and that's actually a barrier for you believing in Jesus, following Jesus, coming to the table and seeing him for who he is. Would you humble yourself and surrender yourself today? Two, is there a disappointment you're harboring against the Lord? One of the things that I've been tempted with over the last nine or 10 months, one of the things I've been tempted with is being angry at God. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm sure some of you have. But one of the things that I've been tempted with is actually harboring anger toward God when God is the father of heavenly lights who gives every good and perfect gift. But I want to encourage you today, whatever expectations you put upon him, will you, will you just let Christ be your all in all? Let Christ be your all in all. And thirdly, along with Jesus, what else do you want? What else do you want? The Bible says that God has given us everything for us to enjoy. And so we enjoy everything that the Lord blesses our lives with. But at the end of the day, we don't take anything with us. We take none of it with us. So other than Jesus, what else can you not live without? Can I encourage you today? Make Jesus your all in all. Will you pray with me? God, um, we don't come this morning glibly. We don't come into this place uh, with shallow platitudes. We either have you or we don't have you. And God, as we walk through things that we just don't have answers for, as we walk through situations that we feel like we cannot face in our own strength, We either have you or we don't have you. You're either sitting at the table handing out bread and our eyes are open to the reality of who you are, our Savior and our Lord, or we don't. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've never surrendered your heart and your life and your mind and all that you are to him, would you just receive him right now? Would you just open your empty hands and receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you do it right now? And don't you wait until you get home. Would you just receive him? God, we do. And if you're here this morning and you've been trusting in anything else, any gifts from the Lord or blessings of the Lord or whatever it is, if you're here this morning and Jesus is not your all in all,
You may not know how, but will you just say, yes, God, you are my all. You're everything I need. You're the longing of my heart's desire. Every desire in my heart. And Lord, we worship you and we love you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you.